Well, good morning, everybody, and a special good morning and welcome to those of you joining us from Calvary, Quakertown. It's great to have you today. Well, in case you haven't realized it, this is Labor Day weekend, so I'm kind of depressed and sad because that means summer is over, we're headed into fall and eventually winter, which is disgusting. So I'll try not to be real depressed and a downer during the message, but we're entering, uh, only thing good about the fall is football season. Uh, but after that, there's not a whole lot there that I'm looking forward to. Well, you were reminded in the video that we're in a series that we're calling FaceTime. And in that series, what we've done over the summer is that we've been looking at different conversations that Jesus has with various people different encounters that we have recorded for us in the scripture. And I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but when Jesus confronts someone who's feeling confident, someone feeling pompous and proud, someone who has their act together, Jesus usually comes um, in a confronting kind of way. He challenges. But if someone's feeling afflicted and down, feeling beat up, Jesus often comes to that person and brings encouragement and seeks to build them up. Jesus comes exactly the way we need him to come to accomplish what God wants to do in our lives. Well, we've seen a whole bunch of those encounters over the summer. This morning, we are going to come to my favorite encounter, however. So if you have your Bibles, you can get ready by turning to Revelation chapter one. If you use your phone, use you version on the phone, you can go to Revelation one, use your tablet, whatever you've got. We're gonna eventually get to Revelation chapter one and look at the encounter that John has with Jesus. But before we get there, I wanna start with a question. What do you think some of the uh, people from the Bible would say in answer to this question? So was it worth it? Was it worth it? Let me give you an example. Suppose we had Abraham with us today. We said, Abraham, was it worth it? Leaving your hometown, familiar surroundings, the people that you know and the situation you know, and follow God to who knows where. And when you finally get there, you're following this elusive promise of a son. Once the son comes, you never own property in the place that he led you to anyway. Abraham, was it worth it? How about Moses? Moses, was it worth it? giving up the pleasures and treasures of Egypt, giving up prestige and power to lead a ragtag group of whiners out of Egypt across the desert for 40 years hearing their complaints. And then at the end of the journey, you never get to enter. Moses, was it worth it? How about John the Baptist? John, was it worth being a truth teller right to Herod's face and losing your head? Beside that, you have to eat bugs and wear itchy clothes? John, was it worth it? How about Mary? Mary, was it worth it? Giving birth to a child out of wedlock when that wasn't cool? And then years later, watching your baby die on a cross? Mary, was it worth it? How about Paul? Paul, was it worth it? Giving up your respected position and authority and become part of the wrong team. And being part of riots and beaten and shipwrecked and maligned and slandered and eventually executed. Paul, was it worth it? How about John? John, was it worth it to preach and teach and train leaders? And rather than retiring to Florida where your grandkids can come and visit, you're exiled to an island prison and you're kind of left to rot there? John, was it worth it? 
Well, rather than leave the question in the third person, I thought uh, I'd ask you a few other questions this morning. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to tell the truth when lying would get you a promotion and a raise? Is it worth it to get up a half hour earlier than you have to in the morning to read a small part of the Bible and kind of say your prayers and get your head and heart aligned for the day rather than just get up and rush out the door to work? Is, is it worth it? Is it worth it using some of your disposable time and energy to volunteer to lead a children's group or a student group rather than sit at home and watch TV or golf or go to the ballgame? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to take the risk of sharing with a coworker why you're seeking to continue what Jesus started and share with that person the difference that he made in your life? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to live at a lower standard of living than you could so you can take some of your resource and put it into play to advance what God's doing rather than you're doing? Is it worth it? Well, what I want to do this morning is give you the short answer, and sad to say, then the long answer. The short answer is yes, it's worth it, all right? Yes, it's worth it. In fact, we already sang that, right? It's worth it because he is worthy. Jesus is worth every sacrifice we will ever make. Jesus is worth every temptation we will resist. Jesus is worth every gift we ever give. Jesus is worth any risk we ever take in following. He's worth it all. He's worth it because he is worthy. And that's what my favorite encounter from Revelation 1 always reminds me of. So have your Bibles or your phone. Follow along as I read, beginning in Revelation 1, chapter, uh, first chapter, verse 9, and see if you can come up with some specifics to the answer or to the question. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. 
I received uh, some hermeneutical instruction on how to read apocalyptic literature from my two-year-old grandson. <laughs> Often we make a mistake when we come to the book of Revelation, and we make the mistake because we don't understand the difference between picture books and puzzle books. And so here's your hermeneutical lesson. Here it is. Picture books and puzzle books are not the same thing. Picture books are neat and clean and kind of fun. A picture book, you look at the picture and you find the two little bunnies or you find the tractor, you find a little guy and you, oh, and ah, the picture. And then you turn over and look at the next. That's what picture books are. Puzzle books are not like that. Puzzle books are messy. Puzzle books require crowns and pencils and pens, scissors, blow torches, screwdrivers, hammers. Puzzle books require all kinds of manipulation. Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. When we come to Revelation, we don't come with scissors and hammers and torches to move things around and manipulate them. We come to a scrapbook. Scrapbook that gives us pictures of Jesus. And it's not so much linear in how we put them together. It's just reminder after reminder after reminder of who he is and what he's done. So with that little hermeneutical lesson behind us, we can now answer the question, is it worth it in the longer version? Well, the first thing I want to say, it's worth it because he is the author and therefore has authority. He's the author and has authority. Um, we're not going to look at all the details in the chapter. You can kind of do that on your own. I want to tease out just a few of them to help us start the year, end the summer, start the year on Labor Day weekend. How can we start this season by reminding us that it is worth it because he is worthy and the first thing we need to know, he's the author and authority. He says it like this. I am the alpha and the omega. Now, all of you that were in a sorority or a fraternity know exactly what Jesus is talking about. That's the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. So what the heck does that have to do with anything? Jesus says, I am the alpha. I'm the beginning. I'm the beginning. Now, I hesitate to ask this because sometimes you guys uh, frustrate me, but I'll ask it anyway. How many of you remember... Anything about our The Story app in the six acts of the Bible? Any of you remember that? Good, you raise your hand because you know I won't call on you, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we have an app, right? It's called The Story. We've been through The Story a couple times. We've taken the Bible, put it into six acts, so we kind of remember how it goes. God creates, God is rejected, God promises, God appears, God sends, God restores. There are the six acts. We know how that works. But one thing I almost always say when I talk about The Story is this. Jesus did not begin at the beginning. He's eternally before the beginning. The beginning is what he created, but it's not him. God did not begin at the beginning. He has no beginning. He's eternal. When Jesus says, I'm the alpha, he's not saying he's the beginning. He's before the beginning. When the beginning began, he was before that. He's before the beginning. He's the alpha. And what that means is uh, he has authority. You ever notice, you and I can argue about what something meant or what the poem's about or what the story, but the guy, or the guy or the girl who wrote the thing, they actually have the final say on what the poem or the story's about. They also have authority in telling us how to use things. So let me share with you a few of my uh, frustrations. I have a lot of them in life. I won't mention people. I'm just going to mention some things, all right? It really frustrates me that I have to have my foot on the brake before I push the button to start my car. I hate that. 
I mean, I remember the old days, you had to put the key in and pump the gas in order to start it. I don't want my foot on the brake when I push the button. I want my foot ready to give it gas because I'm ready to go. But the manufacturer, the author of the car said, if your foot's not on the brake, you can't start it. I can sit there all day saying, I'm gonna do it my way. I'm not gonna do it the author's way. I'm gonna do it my And I can push that button all day and eventually the battery will go dead and the car still won't start because the author has authority to tell me how the car starts. I hate that. I hate when the electric goes out. Usually it doesn't stay out long. I hate when the electric goes out because then Kim and I have to reset all the clocks in the house. Every one of them has to be reset in a different way. Do you notice this? And none of them follow the rule of common sense. So for example, on the microwave, wouldn't you think that you hit the time button to adjust the time. No, no, no. Time means how long you're gonna cook something, not setting of the time. I have to stand there for five minutes until Kim tells me how to set the clock again. I hate having to reset my password every couple months. Don't you hate that? I'm up to like number 57 now on my password. I just keep getting rid of that number and add the next one. That's my password number. But the problem is I can push the button to start the car without my foot on the brake and the car's not starting. I can try to access my computer without changing my password. I won't get any access. And I can try to set the time on the clock or in the digital thing or in the microwave and it's never gonna reset unless I do it according to the instructions of the author. The author and manufacturer has authority to tell me how things work. Oh yeah. So when Jesus says, uh, I'm the alpha, He's saying, uh, this is my world. This is my universe. I'm the author. If you want life to work, you'll do it my way or it won't work. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of hard-headed with that. I keep trying to do it my way, and Jesus keeps saying, no, 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 I'm the author, therefore I have authority. Keep trying to start the car. Don't change your pace. God, see how that's working for you. He's the authority because he's the author. But that verse also says he's the omega. That's kind of the last letter, right? And you know what I really like about this encounter with Jesus? Because John's encounter with Jesus is just the prelude to our similar encounter with Jesus. Maybe you've never thought about that before, and so I'll kind of ruin your Labor Day weekend. One day soon, you and I will be in John's position. We are marching to that appointment and you and I will make it. But if you're anything like me, I often establish other omega points in my life. Do you ever do that? You set up competing goals, competing objectives, and before you know it, we wind up living for the other omega points rather than this one. And so I think John can help us think through as we're starting a new season, make sure you have the right omega point. He's the author and has authority and you will keep this appointment. Therefore, why not make daily decisions, hourly decisions, monthly appointments and schedules, agendas and priorities with the Alpha and Omega in mind? We are moving to this destination. Jesus isn't just author and authority, he's judge. And one day you'll give an account to the authority, and you'll figure out how that goes. So I uh, had the sneaking suspicion, if you're anything like me, you periodically need that reminder, right? Jesus says, I am the Alpha, 
and the omega. I'll add, live accordingly. But that's not the only thing we read. There's something really strange in here. It says that Jesus has knowledge and wisdom. Now, it doesn't actually say that. It says it in kind of a weird way. Uh, here's, how, here's how it's portrayed in the vision. The hair on his head was white like wool, white as snow. In case you haven't noticed, white hair is something that people try to avoid in our world at all costs and almost the forgetting of expense, right? You avoid, the only thing worse than white hair is no hair. I'm on my way to both of them, I think. Um, but we try to avoid white hair. But you've got to remember, in the biblical picture of things, white hair is associated with age Age is associated with knowledge and wisdom. Now, I know, I know, we all know stupid old people, all right? That's not, but the point is usually, if you live long enough, you learn some stuff. If you live long enough, you become a little wiser. White hair associated with age. Age is associated with wisdom. Jesus has white hair, white as wool, whiter than any bleach could ever make it. Daniel uh, chapter 7, where a lot of this imagery comes from. You can check that out if you want. Calls Jesus the ancient of days. That's the white hair thing, right? Jesus has white hair, white like, well, he's the ancient of days. He's eternal. The picture is he knows everything. He has all wisdom. There's nothing he does. Jesus will never be surprised, never caught off guard. Do you ever uh, not know what to do? You ever get confused on which road to take? Should you go left, right, down the middle? How does that work? Well, why not do the same thing and ask the one who has all knowledge and wisdom to help you kind of figure it out? In fact, wouldn't that be a pretty good strategy as we're approaching a new season? Why not ask the one with all knowledge and all wisdom to help us out and give us some wisdom, help us to slow down and not decide until he prompts us and leads us if you need knowledge, ask the one who has all knowledge. You need wisdom, ask the one with all wisdom. The one with brilliantly white hair waits to give you wisdom and help guide and direct us. The same verse that talks about the white hair says that uh, Jesus has blazing eyes, eyes that, like blazing fire. Now, that's not an idiom we use too much. We have another idiom. Now, you help me, right? I'll start it and you all finish it because I know. Mothers have eyes. In the back of their head. Now, we don't mean that literally, right? Because that would really be gross. Like if moms had these eyes in the back, they need glasses on the front and the back. What do we mean? Moms are all seeing. They know, not, not really, but we, they know. That's kind of the picture that John has. Jesus has blazing eyes. There's nothing that escapes his notice. That's kind of good news, bad news, right? He knows when you've been wounded. He knows when you've been offended. He knows when you've been slandered. He knows when other people have used you. He knows when other people have taken credit for what you. He knows all that. Oh, yeah, but he also knows when we screw up. He knows when we lie. When we, he knows everything. There's a good side and a bad side to that. But there's another part of blazing eyes that the eyes in the back of their head think don't get at. Fire also purifies. That's why we like our hamburgers cooked especially our chicken, right? Otherwise you get sick. We need to cook things. Jesus blazing eyes, not just all knowing, not just having wisdom, but Jesus wants to purify and change us. The Alpha and Omega invites us into this relationship, this all knowing omniscient relationship. 
that is transforming as well. And as he knows, and we admit that he knows, and we acknowledge that he's right, and turn from those things and turn to follow him, our lives are purified and changed. And my guess is John has lots of memories flooding through his head as he looks at the one with brilliantly white hair and eyes that are flaming fire. Where's another piece of the picture I want to mention? That is Jesus' feet. You know that? Jesus is um, unshakable and secure. How does that come across in the picture? He has bronze feet. That's kind of weird, right? But bronze was a really strong metal. And some of you are thinking, why didn't he have steel feet or titanium feet? Because they didn't have those metals back then, right? Bronze was like the strongest, most secure metal they had back then. And so for John's understanding, Jesus has bronze feet. He is absolutely secure. I sure hope you were thinking and, and reflecting as we sang the song, he is worthy, right? Jesus is secure. Build your life on that foundation because Jesus doesn't shake, doesn't shake. Everything else we build our lives on shakes. And every once in a while I have the suspicion that what God does is whatever we have as our foundation, God likes to come along and shake it a little bit because he loves us and cares for us and wants us to build our lives on the secure foundation. We run, over, we run off to insecure foundations. God shakes them so we'll build on the right foundation. Jesus is unshakable and absolutely secure. I wonder what John thought as he sees Jesus with bronze feet. Maybe he looked down at his uh, old, gnarled, funky feet. Maybe they're in shackles or maybe they're chained. But he moves his gaze from his feet to Jesus' feet and everything changes. In the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar uh, has a dream, remember? And I should probably tell you, starting next week, we're going to work our way through the book of Daniel, so you guys can get a head start doing it. And we're going to try to answer the question, how can we stand out when we don't fit in? That, that's going to be our goal. How can we stand out when we don't fit in? We're going to kind of walk our way through there. So you can get a head start and look at it. But the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has is pretty interesting. The, the materials of the statue get, they decline in quality on the way down. Gold, silver, metal, iron. And what kind of feet does he have? Feet of clay. Feet of clay. You know, if you're going to build a really big statue that's heavy, don't give the thing clay feet. Right? The clay kind of dries out. The thing falls. That's the point. So maybe John was thinking about Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's vision. A statue with clay feet and Jesus has bronze feet. Maybe he's looking at his own feet. Boy, my feet aren't very secure. And but Jesus has bronze feet, absolutely secure and unshakable. So what are you going to build your life on? You have lots of choices, right? At the end of the day, all of the competition, clay feet. Jesus, bronze feet, unshakable and secure. Now, you might guess at the next part. How does John respond to this? There are lots of other details. We'll save those for now. What's John's response? Well, he tells us what it is. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You bet he did. He walked with Jesus. He heard the sermons. He heard Jesus. He, he, heard, he heard Jesus preach. He saw the miracles. 
He catches a glimpse of Jesus in his glory and his holiness, and he assumes the position, trembling for his very life in the presence of this awesomely brilliant being. I was thinking about that this past week, and I was reminded that that's uh, the normal response. You know that? That's the normal response. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is a preacher. Think about it. Isaiah is a preacher. He catches a glimpse of God in the temple one day, and he says, woe is me. My life's unraveling. I'm about to die in the presence of holy. He's a preacher, one of the good guys. How about Judges? Samson's dad, Manoah. He says to his wife, we better get our affairs in order. We're dying tonight. We just caught a glimpse of God. <laughs> How about Peter in the boat? Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago. Jesus uh, gives Peter this miraculous catch of fish. And what does Peter say? Get out of my boat. Get away from me. How about Paul? Driven to the ground before Jesus in Acts chapter 9. Shaking and trembling, just like John. Who are you, Lord, he says. Wow. One day, we will all assume that position. Make no mistake. As arrogant, confident, pompous, proud, humble, whatever, we will all assume that position. We even kind of tremble and feel insecure when we're around other human beings that are just a little bit better than us, right? <laughs> Let me ask you, for those of you that are golfers, how do you like it when a really, really good golfer gets paired with your foursome? That's terrible, right? I mean, you kind of like what they can do, but you don't want to be too close to them because they're making you look bad. How about a really, really brilliant person? You kind of are amazed at how much they know, but you don't want to be too close because they're showing everybody how stupid you are. If we feel that way with other human beings that are just a little bit better, smarter, more beautiful than us, what are we going to feel like in the presence of the one infinitely better than us, infinitely more wise and glorious? We're going to assume the position, same position. But the best part of the picture is not John's response. It's Jesus' response to John's response. That's the best part. Here's what the rest of that verse says. Jesus is Savior, and he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John, wondering if he will survive this ordeal, trembling on the ground. But then Jesus places his right hand on him, and he says that. Uh, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Can I paraphrase that for us? John, you don't have to be afraid. It's me, and the gospel is still good. Isn't that what Jesus talks about in those verses? I was dead, but I'm alive. He took our place, paid our debt, alive forever. That payment was made. Jesus raised from the dead. God accepted the all. And so the gospel's still good. 
And John probably chokes back some tears and stands up with more confidence, and the response to the response is amazing. Most of the time these days when I read uh, Revelation 1, I, I think of a story that Rich Mao told. Rich uh, used to be the president of Fuller Seminary. I remember hearing Rich speak once, and we went out afterward, and I kind of pushed him a little bit on the story. So let me, let me tell you what Rich said. Rich grew up as Dutch Reformed. That's like really super duper conservative, like not quite Amish, but certainly old Mennonite, right? So real Dutch Reformed, isolation, separation, don't hang out with filthy, creepy culture people. That's Dutch Reformed. So Rich grew up Dutch Reformed, which means they didn't celebrate a whole lot of things related to culture. Well, when little Richie was in kindergarten in early December, one day he looked up and saw a giant stranger at the door. He was wearing a red suit, and he had white hair, white like wool, and he had black boots, black like coal, and he spoke with a booming voice, kind of like the sound of rushing waters, and he said, ho, ho, ho. And little Richie said, I was scared to death. Well, this stranger came into the room right in the middle of our class and told everybody he wants to talk about our behavior. Have you been naughty or nice? Our teacher then announces that we're going to sit on this guy's lap and tell him if we've been good or bad and the consequences will follow. So this giant stranger sits down and the teacher said, so who wants to sit on this guy's lap and talk about their behavior this past year? Richie said, I sat there trembling with my eyes on the floor And finally, the giant said, how about you, Richie? And little Richie said, I walked up to the front. I didn't know whether to scream or to cry or to run or do. But before I knew it, he picked me up and put me on his lap. And he said, I know that he could feel me shaking on his knee and in his hands as he held me. But then that giant stranger turned toward me, pulled his beard back a little bit and said, Don't be afraid, Richie, it's Mr. Cooper from church. (laughs) And Richie said, all the trembling stopped. Because I knew behind the beard it was Mr. Cooper. And Richie and Mr. Cooper were buddies from church. It's kind of like this scene in Revelation 1. John catches a glimpse of who Jesus really is. And like Jello dropped from the table, he's shaking on the floor before him. And the King of Kings reaches down and touches him and says, John, don't be afraid. It's Jesus. It's me. And the gospel's still good. So I want to end by going back to some of the questions we started with, just to make sure you stayed awake. So is it worth it to tell the truth when you could tell a lie and get promoted or get a raise? Is it worth it to live on less than you could to put some of your resource into play to continue what Jesus started? Is it worth it to get up a little earlier each morning to realign your heart and your head with something in the Bible and ask for wisdom and knowledge as you start your day? 
Is it worth it to stop at the women's ministry table on your way out and rearrange your Tuesday schedule to make a Bible study, learn more about who he is and what he did for you? Is it worth it to take a risk this week and tell a neighbor or a coworker where you were Sunday morning and what you were doing? Is it worth it to make a phone call to church or go onto the website or onto the app and get a little more information or volunteer to do something you may not want to do, but you know you should do? I think the answer to all of those that have run before us and to the many of those sitting around us, it's more than worth it. Not because life will be easier, not because you won't have any pain, not because if you do, God will give you what you want. It's worth it because he is worthy. That's why we do what we do. Let's stand and pray. Father, thanks for these uh, records of encounters. Encounters where those that are confident are challenged by Jesus. Encounters of those that are humble and anxious and Jesus encourages and gives them stability. Encounters where we catch a glimpse, Jesus, of who you are, who we are, and are reminded that the gospel isn't just good today, it's good forever and ever. Lord, help us to make decisions today, tomorrow, this week, this fall, knowing it's worth it because you're worthy. We pray in your name with thanksgiving. Amen.